And let's go ahead and open up in prayer. Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to meet together this morning to um, discuss things that are relevant in our culture, help us to know the truth and be able to, to spot error and use this morning's time to enable us to do that. We pray that it would be um, edifying for us and glorifying to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today we're going to be talking about Islam. Um, quick cool piece of information about this. I've mentioned the apologist James Anderson a couple of times. He was the author of that book that I recommended, The What's Your Worldview. He also came up with that TAKES acronym that we've been going through. He's actually a seminary professor, and he has a whole class on Islam. It's like 25 hour-long lectures that are available for free. Uh, Over the last few months, I've listened to like 12 of them. I've got a lot of random things in my head that I've not quite let sink in. So anything I say incorrectly, it's, I guess it is my fault, but that's where I've gotten it. But I actually reached out to him uh, and asked him, I said, I'm going to be teaching a class for one day, for one hour on Islam. What should I know? And he actually gave me a, a good handful of information, and I'll be sharing a lot of that today. But if the Islamic faith is something you're really interested in, I can give you links to where those seminary classes are available for free to listen to. Uh, I also listened to a couple of debates that were really interesting between Muslims and Christians talking about the Quran versus the Bible or the Trinity versus what they call the Tawhid. Um, So lots of stuff available on Islam if you are interested. But for today, um, when talking about the Islamic faith or Muslims in general, things can tend to get really hot really fast. Um, I'm going to eyeball and say all of us were probably alive in 2001. Maybe the back row. It's going to be close. I don't know. But... um, It's hard to not have that in the back of our minds when we think about Islam. So I want to introduce the topic with an interesting question. Um, Let's look at these two guys on the screen. I don't know if you recognize these, but the question would be, what do these two men have in common, apart from really solid beard game? What do they have in common? Well, these are both really well-known Muslims who would both claim to be very true to their Islamic faith. The guy on the uh, left is Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. He is the guy who's considered to be the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks and believing that to be an acting out of his Islamic faith. The, the guy on the right is Imam uh, Musamil Siddiqui. He's also a Muslim, and he was the president of the Islamic Society of North America at the time of the attacks, and he strongly condemned them as evil and incompatible with the tenets of Islam. He even uh, participated in a national day of prayer and remembrance with Billy Graham on September 14th, which won't get into problems I have with those kinds of events, but you get the idea. He was very much on the diametrically opposite side of this other guy. So the question would be, which of these guys really represents the Islamic faith and religion? They're both Muslims. They would both claim to be faithful to their teaching, but which one truly represents Islam? And I think in a sense, we would have to kind of say they both do and that they're both fully committed to the teachings of the Quran and to the understanding of God that is in the uh, Quran. We could say they both represent Islam kind of in the way that John MacArthur and the Pope, Pope Francis, both represent Christianity. They, of course, differ on some very key areas, how they understand the Bible and such, but they both represent Christianity and would claim to be faithful to the teachings of scriptures and their traditions. Now, we wouldn't agree with Pastor MacArthur on every jot and tittle, but we would certainly say he has the more faithful and biblical understanding of Christianity. 
uh, especially on justification by faith alone. But these men on the screen would make the same type of claim that Pastor MacArthur and the Pope would, that they both are being faithful to what their religion teaches. So something to, to keep in mind when we talk about Islam. There are plenty of beliefs across the Islamic tradition that are common, but there's a remarkably wide understanding of some of those beliefs uh, as well. Um, to be faithful to Islam can be a pretty wide uh, margin to look at. So this morning we're going to talk more about the commonalities, the more common uh, Islamic beliefs rather than the diversity because there'd really be no way to, to do it, to fit in every particular viewpoint possible on uh, Islam in a single hour, just like we wouldn't be able to do that with Christianity uh, either. Of course, the, the, the chasm is pretty big in this one, though. So something to keep in mind. Um, but today, we're going to try to talk through it, and as I've tried in the other classes, I'm going to try to boil it down to one singular idea of what Islam represents. Sometimes I've gotten that into like one little pithy statement. This one's a little more uh, complicated. But in a nutshell, if we're going to summarize Islam, we could say that Allah is the only God, and he has no son. Muhammad is his final prophet, and the Quran is his eternal word. Uh, Islam largely tries to define itself in contrast to other religions, trying to set itself apart from uh, the other Abrahamic faiths, especially, um, so Christianity and Judaism, but also polytheism. Rampant polytheism was in place in Arabia around the time of Muhammad, um, just outright pagan worship, and uh, Islam strongly insists that there is only one God, only one God, there's not a plurality of gods, but also in contrast to Christianity, they insist the one God is pure unity, so no, no trinity. Uh, so they certainly would not say that God has a son, he has no divine son. Uh, and a lot of the beliefs and practices of Islam kind of flow out from that basic set of beliefs there. The faith of Islam has a creed, they have a very short, simple creed, they call it the Shahada, um, which you must recite to become a Muslim. And then when you are one, you recite it very regularly. But the first thing you do when you convert is recite this creed. So I've put that on the screen as well. The Shahada says, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. So that's where I grabbed two of the key tenets. I just pulled straight from um, this creed. And then regarding the idea of the Trinity, uh, this is one of the big ways that Islam sets itself apart from Christianity there's a few verses in the Quran that make this clear, but this one explicitly uh, rejects the idea of God being uh, in a trinity or that he has a son. And this is from the Quran, Surah, which is basically just means chapter. Chapter 4 says, Say not three, clearly refer referring to the trinity, desist, it will be better for you, for God is one God. Glory be to him. Far exalted is he above having a son. So from that verse, uh, in the Quran, and then mixed with their creed, you can call that the basic ideas of Islam. How big is Islam? What's the scope of it? Um, pie chart, you're welcome. Uh, I'm not sure how well you can see it, but if you got the email that I sent out with the slides, maybe it's a little clearer. These stats are from 2017. I forgot to cite it on there, but I'm not lying to you. Um, I don't know what the point would be, but you could look it up if you wanted to see it. But um, Islam, or Muslims, account for 23% of the total world population. Big number. Um, Christians, slightly higher, represent, and this would be of all traditions, 32% of the total population on earth. So basically one in three people at least claim to be Christians, and about one in four, one in five, would claim to be um, Muslim. 
Now, personally, based on what we saw with the state of theology and things, I tend to believe the 23% really are Muslim versus believing all 32% really are Christian, but it's a very big portion of the world population. Both of those, Christianity and Islam, globally, we might not think so in America, but globally are growing in terms of number and percentage, but Islam is growing faster, and a lot of um, people who study these things would suggest that if the current rates continue, that Islam will take over, uh, take over Christianity as the largest world religion sometime yet in this century. One other quick thing that I put up here was just looking at the United States. We live in Illinois, and Illinois, as you can see here, we're more likely to have a neighbor who is Muslim in Illinois than in any other state. So in terms of density, Illinois is the most dense um, state in terms of Muslim people. That's probably a bit north of here. Not, probably not referring to Mackinac uh, on here. But even if we think about, you know, it was a big deal that JFK was the first Catholic president, and then we have Joe Biden, Catholic president, and that's like, whew, not a president, not a Protestant president. Well, we even have two, I think two congresswomen now that are openly Muslim. So it's not as foreign in North America and taboo as maybe it used to be. It's very um, prevalent in our lives. Okay, we're going to do a brief history of early Islam. I'm summarizing a 1,400-year-old religion here on a single slide, so it is going to be very brief, but the idea is just to give you a little bit of information on where Islam started from, a little bit of the origins of it. And you probably all know the name of the originator of it, and that would be Muhammad, right? Muhammad was born in Mecca in Saudi Arabia in 570 AD. Uh, as a younger man, he was, he was a tradesman, he was a merchant, he was rather successful at it. But as I mentioned before, in Arabia, they were just steeped in idolatry, just outright pagan worship of actually like buying stuff and worshiping it. Muhammad was very dissatisfied with this local religion, especially when he came into contact with some Jews and Christians who also rejected uh, paganism and polytheism and idolatry like he did. He was attracted to this. According to tradition, Muhammad started to receive his first revelations at the age of 40 in 610 AD while he was meditating in a cave. This was apparently one of his common practices. He would go to be in solitude in a cave and meditate. And he, allegedly I'll say, uh, started receiving these revelations from the archangel Gabriel, or Jibril as they would call him, who appeared to him and started delivering to him these messages from God. And so in doing this, he became the appointed messenger from God. And then over a period of uh, two additional decades, 22 or 23 years, I think it was, he was given these revelations, with he, which he then recited and recounted to others. And it was mostly an oral tradition, but eventually written down. And this is what became the, the Quran. Um, the Quran means recitation, basically. Uh, according to tradition, Muhammad did not write the Quran himself. He was supposedly anyway illiterate. Uh, at least that's what most Muslims would argue, and that kind of points towards why they believe it to be miraculous. But Muhammad's initial message was very simple, which was to renounce polytheism and submit to the one true God, to submit to the will of God, because there's going to be a final judgment. That was their view. So he's preaching repentance and submission to Allah. Um, the word Islam, in fact, simply means submission or to uh, surrender. It's a really a religion of submission and surrender to God. But that was the message he was preaching, uh, especially in the start. But it was not very popular uh, in Mecca. 
Uh, among other things, it was threatening the livelihood of a, of a lot of people who were making money off of pagan worship. If they're building and selling these idols and they're preaching stop the idolatry, that's going to be sig- uh, financially significant. So in light of increasing persecution and some other things, Muhammad and his followers migrated in what's known as the, the Great Hijra to uh, Medina in 622 AD. Medina was a lot more welcoming of Muhammad and his teaching. The whole city essentially embraced Islam and they, they really set up a thriving Islamic community there, which continued to grow. And Muhammad eventually even built up an army there. And there were a number of smaller battles in that time period. And ultimately it led to them returning to Mecca. And in 631, Muhammad returned with his army to claim Mecca for Islam. Uh, it wasn't like a big bloody battle. Mecca wasn't really ready for a war, so they surrendered pretty quickly. And then Mecca has since become the sacred city of Islam. Uh, Muhammad died just from, from illness in 632. And then after that, the Islamic community uh, split in two, really over who should succeed him as the, as the primary prophet. So you may have heard of, of the, the Sunnis and the Shiites or the, the Shiite branch. Those are the main two divisions of Islam. Uh, 85 to 90 percent are Sunnis, um, so they're the they're the main branch. It wasn't so much a doctrinal split; it was a who should take over because he didn't have a male heir. So uh, the Sunnis went with his father-in-law, one of his fathers-in-law, as the leader, and his son-in-law was the leader of the the Shiite side. The, the religion was growing. Um, it really grew at a pretty incredible rate in the decades following his death. They really claimed nearly all of the Middle East and Northern Africa in a pretty short amount of time. Obviously, a lot of other stuff has happened in the centuries following that. This is just the Cliff Notes version of what kickstarted the religion. Okay? I'll have to go fairly quickly through the next couple of slides, but I want to summarize a little bit more about what Islam uh, teaches. So this is what would be considered to be the sixth, some say five, five to six essential beliefs of Islam. It's kind of like their articles of faith uh, in a way. So this is what all faithful Muslims should believe. Uh, first, they should believe in the one God. Very, very strict monotheism. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, it's also important to have belief in the angels. They have a very similar view to Christianity and Judaism in terms of uh, angels as being uh, divine messengers and in some way guardians of human beings. It's also important to have belief in the prophets. So Islam holds to a series of different prophets, actually starting with Adam. The first man, Adam, is considered to be a prophet. And then a number of other recognizable biblical figures are considered prophets in Islam. So uh, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, uh, even Jesus is listed among uh, the prophets for them. And then, of course, Muhammad being the last and uh, greatest prophet. Also belief in the books. So the books would be writings associated with messengers, and messengers would be particular prophets in the list that I just gave who brought a particular book to a particular people at a special time, a special revelation to a people for a period of time. Um, those messengers would include Moses uh, bringing the Torah, David bringing the Psalms, and Jesus bringing the Gospels, and then Muhammad, of course, bringing the Quran. Uh, you may have actually heard this. The, the Quran refers to Jews and Christians as people of the book. So that's what it's talking about. We are people that have received a book. Um, 
we received a former revelation for our people for our time, is what they would suggest prior to Muhammad bringing the final revelation. Number five is a belief in a, day of, a final day of judgment. Uh, we'll talk about more of that in a bit, but this is a similar idea to what you find in Christianity and Judaism uh, about a final day of judgment. And then the sixth one that not all Muslims would necessarily agree is, is a primary one. It's not an essential belief, but a belief in the decrees of God. Uh, Islam has a very, very strong doctrine of uh, predestination. It's, it's more extreme than our affirmation that God works all things according to his will. Uh, they go much further than that, really, to a fatalistic determinism that really starts to blur the lines, if there even is one, and might just wipe it out altogether of any kind of human action or responsibility. It's very, very um, fatalistic in that way. And there's debate among Muslims about how to interpret that as well. But that's officially what you'll find as the six core beliefs. Then how about um, practices? So not so much about what they believe, but what do they do? These are called the five pillars of Islam, and I'll go through these pretty quickly um, as well. But these are the practices that a good Muslim must follow. So this would define a faithful Muslim. Um, first is the, the profession of faith or the, the shahada that we talked about before, that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is the, prophet, is the messenger of Allah. Um, Muslims need to recite this regularly. And as I said, saying this constitutes your uh, conversion to the Islamic faith. You do have to say it sincerely. So what I just did did not count. I did not just convert uh, to Islam. But if you sincerely recite the Shahada, then you have become a Muslim, but then you must continue to recite it on a uh, regular basis once converted. Second is prayer, or a Salah, they call it. This is a ritual prayer that must be done five times a day. It's preceded by ritual washings and purification. So this isn't like a normal prayer where you're going to God uh, confessing, asking forgiveness, asking for him to, to help you, to provide for your needs. It's, it's none of that. It's just a ritual of submission uh, and devotion to Allah. Next would be fasting or psalm. Um, the main fast, we all probably are familiar with the main fast in Islam, which would be the month of Ramadan, right? We, we've heard of that. We hear about, it, hear about it more now than like when I was in school. I don't remember hearing about Ramadan in school. Um, but during this fast, Muslims must refrain from all food or drink between sunrise and sunset. Uh, and they observe Ramadan in commemoration of uh, when Muhammad was given the Quran. Interesting tidbit about that. It's, they follow a lunar calendar for that, so it's not the same month every year. So in the, if it falls in the summertime, where sunrise to sunset is much longer, that's a much more draining process for them. But they are allowed to eat prior to sunrise and after sunset. So it's not like a, a literal month-long fast where they're not having anything. Uh, next one is almsgiving or zakat. So Muslims are uh, required to donate a fixed amount of their property, of their stuff, to charity every year. It's generally thought to be 2.5%, but this is specifically to help the poor and needy within the Muslim community. And then the last pillar is the pilgrimage or the hajj. Uh, every Muslim who is physically able must visit Mecca at least once in their life. And this uh, hajj takes place over a five-day period uh, every year, different time. This last year it was July 7th to July 12th. But once you're in Mecca taking this hajj, you have to participate in a series of rituals there. The most famous, which you may have seen or heard of, uh, is that they have to walk seven times around 
what's called the, the Kaaba or the Kabar, which is a large uh, cubic building that according to their tradition was built by Abraham. Um, but the Kabar is the most sacred place within Mecca for the Muslim. It's kind of the center of their universe. They often refer to it as the house of God. And in fact, some Muslims would believe that the throne of God is literally directly above uh, the Kabar. But this, you also would know about this because whenever a Muslim prays, they have to know where Mecca and the Kabar is. They need to pray in that direction. So wherever you are in the world, as a Muslim, it's important to figure out where you are in relation to Mecca and the Kabar so that you can pray uh, towards it. So that's a little bit of background about where Islam originated and some of the core beliefs and practices. So now we're going to try to run it through the TAKES acronym to see how it looks as a uh, worldview. So we'll start, like always, with theology. They obviously have a theology, a very clear one, the first being their essential belief in the one God. So unlike Mormonism, Islam does hold to monotheism, but it's a very strict Unitarian monotheism that it's, that's at the very heart of Islam. There's only one God, and in their view, this is a pure, undivided unity. So there's no doctrine or concept of the Trinity or any idea of what we would call a Godhead in the uh, Muslim faith. Uh, this unity of God doctrine is known as the, the Tawhid, if you've heard of that, and it's one of the most important theological tenets of Islam. So it's both a numerical unity and that there's just one God, but it's also an essential unity that God is absolutely undivided. He's pure unity. And, and it's worth noting that many Muslims would believe that Christians, they would believe that we are tritheists. Even though we claim monotheism, they would think we are tritheists. They think our doctrine of the Trinity is saying that there are three gods. Uh, there's, there's even a verse in the Quran that seems to suggest that the persons of the Trinity on the Christian view is God, Jesus, and Mary, which is all kinds of mixed up and scholars debate where they, that comes from. But I was listening to a debate, and the fact that um, some Christian denominations emphasize it more than others, where they talk about Mary being Mary, the mother of God, which is, you know, you can talk about that appropriately, and that can be accurate. But they understand that, at least the writer of the Quran understood that, to mean that we thought that Mary herself was a deity, so they're a little confused on that. Uh, I may not have mentioned, but Allah is just the Arabic word for God. Um, it's, it's a generic word for God, but they also do use it as the personal name for God, like, me, well, like we might say Yahweh or Jehovah. So Allah covers personal name and it's just a noun. They would believe that God or Allah is the sovereign creator of the universe. Um, and interestingly, many would also suggest that he's the creator of both good and evil, uh, whereas the Bible insists in Genesis that God created everything very good, everything he made was very good, and then evil came through the, the free choices of his creatures, with Satan, Adam, and Eve. But Islam tends to take a little more symmetrical view of, of good and evil in the sense that God created both directly. Most Christian statements of faith make it take extra effort to make sure we say that God is not the author of sin or the author of evil. Islam, not so much. Uh, the Quran suggests actually that Adam in particular, the first man, was less than very good when he was created, as God describes him as good when he created him. Uh, they would suggest that he ha already had within him some weaknesses or um, defect that then led to his disobedience. So they're, they're often very sympathetic to Adam in that, you know, the odds were kind of stacked against him from the get-go. Uh, Allah 
in this view, creates and sustains and surrounds all things in the sense that he's always there. He's always present to bring about judgment if necessary. There's a, there's a famous verse in the Quran that talks about Allah being nearer to man even than his jugular vein. So I don't know exactly where it is. I'm not a doctor. But it's up here somewhere, uh, right? So the idea being that Allah is even closer to you than your jugular. But that's not meant to be a comforting idea. It's meant to be more of a warning of watch yourself. Allah is right there. So God is, he's always present for a Muslim in the sense that he's close, but he's also considered to be utterly transcendent. So God is so utterly distinct and different from his creation, almost to the point where they would have to say that you can't accurately know anything about Allah. Now, the Quran obviously says some things about Allah in it, but many Muslim theologians would have to suggest that you can't really know Allah as he is. Uh, and that means that they don't ever really consider themselves to have an intimate personal relationship with Allah. There's not a, 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 an intimate connection between creator and creation. They would never refer to Allah as father, for example, like we refer to God as our heavenly father. That's just not the sort of relationship they see um, between them and Allah. <clears throat> I mentioned the decrees a little bit earlier. Uh, the decrees are important for Orthodox uh, Islam. They would suggest that nothing happens apart from um, his decree. He is absolutely sovereign. The, the will of Allah really is the highest principle of Allah, more so than any goodness or mercy. The will of Allah is ultimate. You may have heard the, the common Muslim phrase, Inshallah, they'll say that frequently when they want something to happen, but they're not sure what's going to happen or something did happen that was good or bad, they'll say, inshallah, which means if Allah wills. So they really leave everything up to the will of God, which we can relate with to, to some extent. They, they take it a little more uh, further than we do. Uh, interestingly, God's will is viewed in such a way, or Allah's will is viewed in such a way, that he can really almost arbitrarily will one thing or another. They wouldn't say that he necessarily wills something for an ultimate good, like we would suggest that, while we don't know God's mysterious will, we do believe that he's working all things for our good and his glory. That's not so much a requirement on the Islam side. He wills what he wills, and it is what it is. Uh, moving on to anthropology, so the Islamic view of humanity. In a lot of respects, it's very similar to, to Christianity, but there's also plenty of uh, differences, which will have implications to the things we see next, especially with like ethics and salvation. But they do believe that we are specially created by Allah. Adam was directly created by Allah from um, dried clay, in their view. So pretty close to the Genesis account. But Adam was not made in the image or likeness of Allah in any way. Where that's, of course, explicitly stated in Genesis. They would not say that he is made in the likeness of Allah. And this is because of that radical transcendence, that utter transcendence that we talked about before. Allah is utterly unlike any creature. So the Quran denies that anything here could in any way represent or image something as transcendent as Allah. We too believe God is transcendent, but if you remember we talked about also being imminent, that we can have relationship uh, with God. They, they view that very differently. Uh, they do believe in both the body and the soul, so that we're not purely physical beings. They believe that there is an afterlife that when the body dies, the soul uh, lives on. It still continues in some sense. And they believe that the body will be resurrected 
uh, again, and we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Islam denies that people are sinful by nature. So they don't have really the same doctrine of the fall as we do. Um, so they don't have any view of original sin, for example, to put it in Christian terms. Islam is more or less Pelagian, if you remember we used that term a handful of weeks back, basically teaching that people are born morally neutral, that any given person is equally and fully able to do either good or bad apart from any kind of divine uh, intervention. So we're not tending towards evil, not tending towards good, but morally neutral. In terms of the purpose of life, I think I've referred to this once or twice in the past, the classic question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism of what is the chief end of man? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, if we were to ask that question of Islam, I think they would answer it in this way. They would say that man's chief end or our purpose is to fully and utterly submit to Allah. Again, that's what the word Islam means. It means submission or surrender to the will of God. That's the purpose, is to be in ultimate surrender and submission. In terms of the future of mankind, so where's humanity going? Uh, they do believe we're headed for a future resurrection and judgment, so we can get on board with that so far. Uh, they suggest there will be a day in the future where the dead will be raised, and then there will be a time of judgment, and we'll look at the basis of that judgment in a, in a couple of minutes, but depending on how that judgment goes for you, the, the faithful will go to paradise, which is like a, a wondrous place of rivers and many pleasures. It's quite a, quite a vision. Uh, and then the rest will go to hell. To, to be a faithful Muslim and to go to paradise, you have to believe in those articles of faith that I mentioned earlier. But much more importantly is you need to follow those Islamic practices. You really need to be living in submission and obedience to Allah by following those five pillars that we talked about. It's much more about what you do than what you believe. Knowledge. So what does Islam say about how we know what we go, particularly what we know about God? We'll focus on the spiritual matters. But Muslims do believe in divine revelation through the prophets, uh, much as Jews and Christians would. And as I mentioned, uh, what they consider prophets would be familiar characters that we know of. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, uh, John the Baptist, I don't think I mentioned before. And then Jesus, and of course the last and greatest prophet would be Muhammad. The Quran, which was given to Muhammad, they view that as the literal dictated word of Allah. So a little bit different view on inspiration than what we would hold. According to the Bible itself, humans wrote under the inspiration of God, or as Peter said, that men spoke from God being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we might say it's the word of God through the, the pen of man, so to speak. So the words still have the personality of the writers of Scripture, but that's not how the Quran is understood. There's no thumbprint of Muhammad anywhere on it in their view. They consider it to be the direct words of God given through Muhammad through the angel Jabril, and then dictated word for word. They would also say that the Quran is perfect in every way, specifically in the original Arabic language. So if you translate the Quran into another language, you're losing something. Uh, so they are, have generally historically been resistant to translation. It's only in the last century or so that they started more openly translating it to English, English and other languages, but those are still viewed as lesser than the original Arabic. They would, they would suggest that even Allah speaks Arabic, that the Quran existed eternally 
in its perfect Arabic. They believe it to have a miraculous uh, nature, um, and they would say that the central miracle of Islam is the giving of the Quran, and that proves itself to be um, miraculous and perfect in nature. Uh, they would say that it is perfect in terms of its grammar, that its poetry is perfect, and uh, as I said, the way that it was received through Muhammad, who was allegedly illiterate, also points to the fact that um, it is perfect and miraculous. Considering he was just a tradesman, they say there'd be no way for him to have come up with this on his own, and that points to its um, truth. The Quran is actually one of the most revered, if not the most revered, idea of Islam, um, much how we would revere Christ as, the, Christ as the central point of Christianity. Muhammad is not like the counterpart to Jesus. The Quran would be the counterpart to Jesus. You could, you could call the Quran the living word of God, kind of like how we call the Bible the living word of God, but we also call Jesus the living word of God. Uh, they see that all tangled up within the Quran. Um, if I were to spill a drink on my Bible, I'd be bummed out because I've got to buy a new one. But I wouldn't view that as any kind of attack on God or like I've sinned against him. But, but it's not the same for Muslims. If the Quran is defaced in any way, they get very worked up about that and take some pretty serious measures if they find out that someone has defaced a Quran, for example. So it's a very, very sacred and holy thing for them. The damage of a Quran is like on the level of blasphemy, basically. The Quran, though, is not the only book, according to Islam, that is considered to legitimately be given by Allah. Uh, other books have been received from the earlier messengers that we talked about. So the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, the Psalms, and the Gospels also are considered to be from Allah, given through Moses, David, and Jesus. That counts as books in there. But, this should sound familiar, those books can no longer be implicitly trusted because they've been corrupted, right? That should sound familiar from talking about Mormonism. Uh, they would even suggest that it was the Jews and the Christians that corrupted it, either by mistake or intentionally. Interestingly, though, the Quran itself does not say or suggest that these books have been corrupted. It actually suggests the opposite, which if we end up with time, we'll get to later. It's a very useful thing to know when critiquing Islam. But rather, it's that Muslims have made the inference that those must have been corrupted because they differ from what the Quran Says. So kind of like with the Book of Mormon, anything that those other books say that contradicts the Quran must be wrong because the Quran is perfect and uh, can't be corrupted, so those must have been. So Muslims um, today do believe that these books, although they came from God, have been uh, corrupted, and then that's why Muhammad came. Muhammad came to restore the truth uh, as a prophet through the, the Quran, to, to fix what was lost in the corruption. Ethics, so what about the Islamic view of morality? Uh, similar in concept to Christianity and Judaism, they would say that um, the standard for morality comes from the will of Allah, the commandments of Allah. So there's definitely no moral relativism here. They would say that there are absolute universal moral laws that apply to all people everywhere. They're objective, they're not made up by people. And then in essentially to be good, to be considered a good person, to do what is good, is to be a good Muslim. Um, that's the basic equation here. Submit to the will of Allah, and in doing so, you will be good. That's what it means to live a good life. What that means in practice, right, like what exactly are the laws to follow, that is to follow what they refer to as uh, sharia, 
I'm sure you've heard this word before, Sharia law, right? Um, the word Sharia just means a pathway, like a path or a pathway. Uh, the idea is that there is a well-trodden path that's been laid before you, that's been walked before, and that's what you should follow. That's the idea of Sharia law. Where they get that from is mainly two sources. First, from uh, the Quran, of course, but then second is the, the Sunnah. The Sunnah refers to the example of Muhammad, so the life that he himself lived. Muslims often will describe Muhammad as the, the living Quran. Um, so... Obviously, you need to know how Muhammad lived if you want to model after him. And how they get the Sunnah, how they know of the life of Muhammad, is through the Hadith. If you've heard of the Hadith. This is um, kind of like the Jewish Talmud, um, but it's traditions that have been passed down from generation to generation about what Muhammad said, what he did, uh, what his habits were, what he wore, what he looked like. That's actually why you see so many Muslims that have a beard. It's because Muhammad had a beard. They try to model themselves after him. And a, a lot of effort goes into sifting through these hadith. There's so many hadith and trying to get to what the, the original historical core of Muhammad's life and what he said was because he's the paradigm. They're trying to model after him. But there's no true consensus on how to understand the, the hadith. And so Sharia law is interpreted differently by different groups of Muslims. And nowhere in the world could you really say that Sharia law is fully implemented because there are still debates on exactly what Sharia law is made up of. One thing that almost all do universally agree on uh, in terms of Sharia law is the death penalty in response to apostasy, which is a huge problem for Christians, especially um, Arab Christians who convert to Christianity in a Muslim context where Sharia is taking a serious hold. You've probably heard stories. Best case scenario, the people get just written off from the family and completely cut off. Worst case scenario is something else gets cut off, like their head. That was a tasteless joke, and I apologize. But, but uh, they take it very, very seriously, and you, uh, you hear about that frequently. Uh, other points under this heading, you may have also heard of uh, halal. Those are other practices they need to follow that are kind of like Jewish kosher laws. Um, so among other things, it's, it's, it's saying what's permissible. Halal means permissible, and it's mostly referring to dietary-type stuff. So uh, Muslims can't eat pork. Um, they can't eat blood, they can't drink alcohol, animals for food need to be killed in a certain way, that's all within um, the halal. Amongst all of this, the, the worst sins, there are really two damnable sins that you can't recover from, these are deserving of hell, and those would be idolatry and apostasy. Uh, Muslims speak of the sin, they call it shirk, that's S-H-I-R-K in English, and this is the sin of associating partners with Allah. So making something else a partner with Allah and why that matters to us is that the Quran seems to suggest that Christians commit shirk when we say that Jesus is the son of God and God himself. And that's what extremists will use to justify the killing of Christians in countries where we have missionaries currently. So these are two very serious things, idolatry and apostasy. And then I'm going to I'll quickly touch on the idea of jihad. You've probably heard that word as well, jihad. Very briefly, jihad means struggle or um, striving. It doesn't mean holy war. Some people have suggested it means holy war. The word means struggle or striving. And jihad, like other things within the Muslim community, is interpreted different ways by different groups of Muslims. Uh, there's a pretty common view of an internal jihad, an internal struggle, which is basically about your personal piety, 
uh, struggling to, to fall into submission to Allah, to try to lead that good Muslim life. But there's also the external struggle, the external jihad to try to bring the world under Muslim rule, to have all people submit. And some Muslims would argue that that can be done by peaceful means. Basically, that's their great commission with the external jihad, whereas others would say that it must be done by military and violent means. And that's the one we hear about a lot more uh, often because it's so dangerous. But many would insist that the internal jihad is the much more important one. But we, of course, don't hear about that. We hear the consequences of the, the extreme views of the external jihad. And those jihadists that follow that can certainly find as many verses as they need in the Quran that would seemingly justify those kinds of, of actions, as well as in the Hadith. And we can talk about that more later if, if we so choose. But moving on to salvation, the last letter in our TAKES acronym, what do they view of um, salvation? So how is a person saved? What is wrong and how do we make it right? It's a fairly simple uh, equation for them. The basic problem with any given human is infidelity to Allah, that we're not being faithful to him, that we're not in submission to him. We haven't listened to his messengers. We haven't followed his um, books. So we're not in submission to the will of Allah. That's the, the bad news, if you will. And if that's the problem, then the solution is equally straightforward. The solution is Islam itself. Um, if the problem is infidelity or lack of submission to Allah, then Islam, which literally means submission again, is the solution. So all people should be striving, should be having that internal jihad to bring all things in submission to Allah. First and foremost, bringing ourselves into submission to Allah and his will and his law. And the reason for that, I mentioned before, belief in the final day of judgment. They do believe that every human will be resurrected and have to give an account of themselves um, to Allah, and there will be a time of judgment. And the basis of this judgment is not what you believe. It's a weighing of deeds. Uh, the Quran speaks in a number of different places about our deeds being weighed in a balance on that final day. So if you've seen the picture of you know, holding the balances that way, our good deeds will be weighed against our bad deeds, and if it tips the right way to the right extent, then we are in to paradise, and if it doesn't, we end up uh, in hell without any inner, unless there's intervention from Allah. Exactly how much the balance needs to tip, is it like a 51% to 49% one? That's not clear uh, in, in any of their scriptures or beliefs. And that's a big concern to, to many Muslims. They're constantly wondering if they in fact have done enough good deeds to outweigh the bad deeds. And what that means is there's really just an uncertainty because um, they would confess that no one can fully submit to Allah. Nobody can fully live a sinless life. So that means that on the last day for them, their main hope is appealing to divine mercy, a hope for mercy from Allah. They often refer to Allah as the merciful. Um, we do that. We, we appeal to God for mercy, but we also have an objective hope and person in Jesus Christ that we can appeal to um, on our behalf, whereas they don't have that. Um, they just have to hope that Allah will be merciful towards them specifically according to his mysterious will that you can't actually know. The issue for them would be that Allah's mercy is seemingly arbitrary and is very unpredictable. There's no, there's no way to know or even have hope for the fact that he would specifically show mercy to you. So it's not something you can rely on you can't predict to what extent 
or if at all you will receive mercy. There are no promises of Allah. He's not a covenant-keeping God like ours is. Um, and they don't have a doctrine of atonement uh, in, Islam, in Islam. So there's nothing outside of themselves that they can look to for hope or assurance. So there's no atonement and there's no assurance in the Islamic faith. At the end of the day, you are going to have to pay the price for your shortcomings unless you're lucky and Allah shows you mercy. But a hope or a faith in that is essentially a blind faith because, again, there's no guarantees anywhere in their scriptures that they could place their hope in. They do have a view of, it's kind of like a purgatory-like perspective that believing Muslims could go to hell for a period, and if they repent and if they do good works in the afterlife, Allah still might show them mercy uh, after the fact. But all in all, there's, there's nothing you can do to ensure that you will make it to paradise, except some Muslim fundamentalist groups, and you've probably heard of this one. This is the kind of groups that crash planes into buildings, right? Some Muslim groups would argue that there is one guarantee into paradise, and that's martyrdom. Uh, martyrdom in the cause of jihad, either in like extreme acts of terrorism, uh, allegedly for a religious cause like 9-11, or any kind of military struggle for the cause of expanding Islam and people being brought into submission to Islam, that will get you a free pass into paradise if you die in those endeavors. That's not an essential belief of Islam. That's important to say. That's not an essential or even a common belief. There's a lot of debate about how to get that interpretation from the Quran and the Hadith, but you can find it. You can find justification for it. Okay, we've set out the, the basic views of Islam. There's, of course, plenty more that could be said um, about this. Before we go into the evaluation, we only got 10 minutes, um, which is okay. But before we do that, are there any um, questions or comments or anything that I was unclear on that I may or may not be able to answer? Yeah, Gabe? So just looking at that, that No, definitely not. So they have, um, there's a very common story that is meant to really um, extol the mercy of Allah. They see this as a good story. And it's a, it's a story of a man who has murdered 99 people. He, I'm going to, hopefully I get this right. But he goes to a priest and asks if God will forgive him. And the priest says no. So he murders the priest. So now he's murdered 100 people. And he starts to, to head towards another city where he can learn how he can repent. And the story is, is that he died in the middle of that journey on his way from just killing his 100th person to going to seek what repentance truly means. And Allah intervenes here and makes the determination that if he is one cubit closer to his destination than from his origin, he'll be forgiven and get into paradise. And that's supposed to demonstrate Allah's mercy in that story. What it tells to, to Christians and what it tells to me is that that's completely arbitrary and based on nothing that is consistent and reliable, and it's actually a lack of justice, right? So for the 100 people that were murdered, there's no justice. Nobody is at all is paying for those sins, and this guy, just by a stroke of luck, because he took an extra step, gets into to paradise. Whereas we would certainly say that a man who's murdered 100 people could still be redeemed. God could still redeem him, but the 100 people that are murdered would still 
have justice served because those sins were atoned for by Jesus Christ. So Allah may be merciful, but he's also unpredictable and unreliable and capricious and arbitrary, like you said. Anything else? Yeah, um, on that note, I've heard this, that um, Muslims, they believe that if they have not been punished for, what, say, killing somebody, that uh, Allah is merciful in that case, that, that they did nothing wrong. I don't know if that's true. I've not, I've not heard that. Um, but it would seem to logically follow that either they did nothing wrong or they're just the benefactor of his mercy and they can praise him for that mercy. But again, in a scenario like that, there's no justice done. So they wouldn't, I don't know that they would call Allah just, like we refer to God as just. He's both the just and the justifier. They would just say that he's merciful, but it's a, an arbitrary mercy. Mm. Um, I don't know. I don't know that they would. I don't know if that's true or not, for one. Um, I know that they follow a lunar calendar, so they got some uh, affection for the moon. But with how strictly monotheist they are, I'd be surprised if they worship it. But they may see it in very high regard. But I don't know about that. Be a good Google search for later. Anything else? Okay, probably don't have time to do these, but I had five different examples in the slide handouts. There was no chance I was covering five anyway. I was gonna maybe do one or two. But if you have those um, notes, you can look through them and we can discuss them or you can ask me questions about them later. One of the key ones here, which turns into a couple different things. Maybe I'll try to sneak it in quickly. Similar to Mormonism where they officially um, affirm prior books as does the Quran. It affirms um, Moses, the writings of Moses, the Pentateuch, um, the Psalms and the Gospels. It also speaks of Jesus and it also speaks of salvation, but in very different ways for these things than what those writings actually suggest. So there's an inconsistency there. And the question starts to become, can divine revelation be lost or corrupted or not? And the reason we ask that is because if a, a Muslim can only say yes or no to that, can divine revelation be corrupted? They, of course, would suggest the Quran could not be, but they suggest that the, the other earlier books have been. But why do they think that the Bible is corrupted if they say no, divine revelation can't be um, corrupted? There'd be no reason for them to doubt the Bible in that case. Um, and what's interesting about this is the writer of the Quran apparently did not think those books have been corrupted because the Quran directs them to those books. Maybe I'll skip ahead a little bit. Uh, just a few examples they have in Surah 6. None can alter the words and decrees of Allah. Already hast thou received some account of those messengers. Those messengers being Jesus for the Gospels, Moses for the Torah, David for the Psalms. The, the Quran seems to affirm in its time that those were reliable. They also had... The word of the Lord doth find its fulfillment in truth and in justice. None can change his words, for he is the one who heareth and knoweth all. That's from, also from Surah 6. So the Quran seems to affirm that those books were at least not corrupted in their day, so in the 600s. Well, we actually know what the Bible said in the 600s. Because of our manuscript tradition, we know 
that what was written then, we even know what was written before then, is what we have now, um, almost to the jot and tittle. So were they or were they not corrupted in that time is the question that you would have to ask the Muslim to ask. And whether they answer yes or no, they're kind of putting themselves in a tough situation. If they say no, the scripture can't be corrupted, well, then you need to deal with the contradictions that I had on the previous slide. If they say yes, it can be corrupted, it's then, well, is the Quran corrupted and how do you know that it's not? So they're kind of stuck in a challenge there. Um, oh, I had another one on there. And maybe really, really quickly, some other contradictions if you didn't get the notes. This one's interesting for us because uh, I've known of Muslims who are very charitable towards Christians and don't think that Christians even need to be converted. And that's because there are some scriptures in the Quran that seem to say Christians are good. If they follow their book well, they're all set. And then there seems to be others who would say that Christians are blasphemers. And blasphemy is a big deal <laughs> in, uh, in their faith. So, for example, here, they do blaspheme who say God is Christ, the son of Mary. So calling us blasphemers. But said Christ, which Christ didn't say this, spoiler alert, O children of Israel, worship God, my Lord and your Lord. Whoever joins other gods with God, God will forbid him the garden and the fire will be his abode. So this one up here says Christians, as long as they follow their book, they're doing okay. This one says Christians got a fiery abode waiting for them. So inconsistency there. Not going to have time for these, but these are also very important um, doctrines especially in terms of hope that we were talking about before and the arbitrariness of Allah and how that cannot lead to assurance in any way, whereas the Christian worldview has a very robust doctrine of atonement. Quickly, um, in the Islamic view, basically some sins are forgiven and others are not, and it's seemingly arbitrary. So not everything goes punished. The sins that are overlooked are gone unpunished for no apparent reason, whereas in the Christian worldview, all sins are punished, right? Either by us in hell or on the cross. So nobody, nobody who's been sinned against goes without receiving justice. Then the last one is kind of along those lines. The key to being saved in the Islamic view is on personal righteousness, trying to be good enough or hoping for Allah's mercy. And he is merciful, but he's unpredictable. Versus us, we're not hoping in our personal actions. We are um, saved through a personal faith in Jesus Christ. And we can have assurance and hope that we are in fact saved because we have a covenant-keeping God. God has made us promises, and he is faithful to um, meet what he has said he will meet. So I blew through those. But if you have more questions about them, we can talk about them another time, or you can reach out to me directly. I didn't want to make this into a two-weeker because we've only got three more weeks left and two religions yet to go. So that would kind of make that... Um, difficult to do. And one of those religions is Roman Catholicism that I'm also going to merge in Eastern Orthodoxy. So that will be a two-weeker. And then I still wanted to get to Jehovah's Witnesses. So we crammed, like I said, a 1,400-year-old religion into to one hour. So we missed some stuff, but that's okay. And again, if you, I mentioned some of you may have filtered in. If you want uh, the link to where you can access 25 hour-long lectures about Islam for free, I know you can't wait. Uh, I could share that uh, with you. But they've, they've been very beneficial, very interesting conversations. And 25 hours is, gives it time to breathe where one hour uh, doesn't so much. But any, any closing questions or comments before we dismiss? Okay, well, I'll pray and we can get on with our Lord's Day. Lord, we, we thank you continuously for being a covenant-keeping God, a God who's revealed himself to us clearly in your word, 
a God that we can count on to be both just, perfectly just, but also the justifier. Thank you for Christ and what he took upon himself on the cross voluntarily, that uh, our sins, while heinous against you, have been dealt with by him, and through him we can have eternal life. Pray that uh, any Muslims that we know, we would not fear. We would be open and loving towards them, knowing that they need good news. Father, I I believe that um, Satan delights when we fear Muslims, but Father, I believe that you would delight that we would love them and bring them the good news of your gospel. I pray that we would be willing and able and bold to do so. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.